Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California professional firefighters where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to the CPF Firewire. I'm the CPF president, Brian Rice. And for most of the last decade, our profession's been coming to grips with really a deadly health and safety crisis, suicide. And since 2014, the number of reported firefighter suicides in the U.S. has consistently exceeded traumatic line of duty deaths. And tragically, we're seeing the impact of this epidemic in the names being added to our California Firefighters Memorial. Uh, in California, we've led the way in recognizing the link between the job of firefighter and suicide. And we're one of the first states to recognize post-traumatic stress as a presumptive job-related injury. And this month, the California fire agencies are once again joining with employee groups in the suicide prevention and awareness stand down. So during the week of May 22nd through May 26th, you're encouraged to set aside time in the firehouse for training and exercises centered around behavioral health. And today on the Firewire, we get to reconnect with someone who is bringing suicide awareness training directly into the firehouse. Um, Honored once again to have Alex Hamilton. Uh, Alex is a chief of the Oxnard Fire Department. He spent 18 years with the department having previously served on the executive board of the Oxnard Professional Firefighters Local 1684. Alex brought a groundbreaking peer-to-peer suicide awareness training to Oxnard, and it's a program which is expanding to other agencies throughout the state. When we first spoke with Chief Hamilton in 2019, it was one of our most downloaded uh, Firewire podcast episodes, and Chief Hamilton, uh, Alex, we welcome you to the CPF Firewire Again, it's good to see you, my friend. Yeah, you too, Brian, and and thank you. It, it it's a it's a tremendous honor to be sitting here and talking with you on this. You know, just um, well, let's do a refresher. Talk about your journey into the fire service, and particularly the California fire service, um, and um, just kind of walk us through and uh, how you got here. Yes, yeah, so I I was uh, I spent a couple of years as a volunteer firefighter back in Australia, um, well, many years ago now, and uh, and loved it. And so, and as a volunteer in a, in a small rural community, it was nothing like a paid professional firefighter here in California, but I met my now wife in Australia. She grew up in, in Culver City in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. And so, so we ended up here and, 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 uh, as it turns out, Oxnard was actually the first job I applied for. Um, and so, which something of a miracle I know and how competitive it is. So certainly I applied for other, other places, but ultimately Oxnard is where I ended up which is fantastic for my wife because we're very close to her yeah. family. Um, but ultimately um, getting into the fire service and then it, it sort of opened up this whole new world on, on all the opportunities that the fire service provides. But one of the things that was severely lacking for us, and I'm not sure if it's having parents as social workers as my background, but we, we, we just weren't taking good enough care of our folks, mm-hmm. uh, both, in, both in terms of after incidents, but also sort of preloading them and educating them on what um, behavioral health issues look like. And so a- as I got more involved, I, I got onto the executive board. I served six years as secretary treasurer mm-hmm. for uh, 1684. Um, through some pretty tumultuous times uh, back then. And I so, remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, I think we were union presidents about the same time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, it, and we, you know, 
in my time there, we, we saw some folks with some significant issues that we really didn't handle well. Um, I, I feel like both from the labor side or the management side. Mm-hmm. And so um, after a significant call that I had, it was actually Thanksgiving Day, it'd be 12 years ago this year, um, where it, 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 was a, it was a fatality, a pediatric fatality, uh, vehicle versus pedestrian. And so it impacted me pretty significantly. At the time, I just sort of sought out help for myself, but right. not really understanding that it, the, the firefighter I was with that day was also tremendously impacted. Um, but it took a number of months before he came out and he came to me and he says, I need some help. I don't know what to do. We didn't have any resources right. set up. And that was sort of that, that oh shit moment where we need to do something. W- once you realized that there's a void, the services aren't there. Pick up the story. What did, what did you, what, what did that journey kind of look like for you? And, and since the last time we talked, there's been a lot of changes. Absolutely. And I, I want to work our way to that. Yeah, no, I, the, there has been a fantastic or a, a very positive pendulum swing uh, in the right direction. But, but no, so when, when we decided we needed to do something and it was the executive board that was, was really, we have to do something here. Um, thankfully, the, the management team that was um, in charge at Oxnard at the time really didn't have any answers. So we're quite happy for us to sort of take the lead. And at first, I think I, I felt like I was going to try and fix what we had, which, which really wasn't much. It, wasn't, it was a sort of a poorly implemented CISM program. And then the more, I, the more research I did, I reached out to the IFF. Um, they are actually looking at, at creating what is now their two-day peer support program. Um, we were able to get some grant money out of the Assistance of Firefighter Grant Program. Mm-hmm. And so all these things sort of started to come into alignment. And so um, Oxnard was actually the IFF guinea pigs for their, for their two-day peer support wow. program. Yeah, so um, uh, Frank Lido and, uh-huh. and uh, Pat Morrison mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I know I'm, there's plenty more people that I could, uh, could mention. Th- that. Those are kind of the godfathers of this whole yeah. m- movement. Yeah, and so they, they came out and, and we, we did a sort of a trial two-day training. Um, they, they've, they've changed that course um, over time and, and it's, it's just getting better and better. Um, but that, um, we, we, we went down that road. And then the other thing that, because that was just a small piece of the right. peer support and because we had had issues with uh, suicide attempts uh, within our agency, we really we knew we needed to address that too. We wanted to make sure in, in starting a peer support program, we really wanted to make sure that we we gave everyone the tools to be comfortable in that mm-hmm. in that space. And so uh, we actually first heard about uh, the the Living Works uh, tiered um, program of tiered uh, uh, suicide prevention. Uh, it was actually from FDNY. Um, and so, and we just took that to the next degree in, in actually implementing the, the different layers of suicide prevention that, that the Living Works model offers. So everyone would receive the three hours of suicide awareness training, mm. and then our peer support folks would get two days of intervention training. How, how much of that, how much of the, um, that training have, how many firefighters have you delivered that training to over the course of time? In just a guess. Yeah. So I, um, we're actually we're, we're teaching uh, uh, tomorrow and Friday here in Sacramento, and um, and I think that'll take us over 450 since we started um, in the two day intervention program. That's that's 450 trained folks out there that strengthen our our net. Talk about being a firefighter um, 
and the heightened risk for um, either post-traumatic stress injury that can lead to a number of things, including, including suicidal thoughts. I think the game's changed when it comes to the fire service. And I think um, our, our folk, like we, while we've hired thousands of um, new firefighters, we haven't, re- we haven't expanded the, the ranks as much as call volume and things like that have increased. And certainly going through the last four years since we last right. spoke. And so I, I feel like our folks are getting exposed to a lot more, a lot more frequently. And, and so there's, there's not an opportunity for their brains to sort of off gas some of this stuff and, and reconcile what they've gone through. And that's where I think we're starting to see, um, starting to see some of these increases um, in, in PTSD and things like that. But also um, hopefully it's through greater awareness and rather mm-hmm. than sort of burying some of these symptoms where actually people are actually seeking out help. Right. But I think one of the things to keep, um, that, that makes the profession of firefighting a little bit different. In, um, you know, there's, there's been an increase in suicide th- throughout the general population um, over the last, oh, it's been really over the last 15 years other than a small dip um, during the pandemic. And so uh, there's this theory about, um, they call it the interpersonal theory of suicide, where it's this idea of being a burden the, um, coupled with the risk of, of um not, not feeling like you belong. Mm-hmm. And then the third risk, and when these three risks come together, but the third risk is the capability for suicide. And, and so the, the way this model works is when these three risks come together, it ends up um, that's when you, you, you at a much greater risk of suicide. I feel like for firefighters, that last risk, that capability for suicide is where things are a little bit different for us. Because it when we talk about capability for suicide, it's that comes from um, sort of you getting desensitized to pain mm-hmm. um, is one of those issues, and then sort of an increase in fearlessness. And so I think those talk, two pieces. Talk a little bit more. Expand on the desensitized. Yeah. So I, 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 being exposed to as much um, uh, terrible things that that firefighters are on calls, I think creates this um, this sort of insensitivity, mm-hmm. call it maybe burnout might be another way to, to describe it, but um, that that gets you further down that road towards uh, uh, sort of a heightened risk of suicide. And I think that's the difference between firefighters and the general population is that desensitization that, that gets you closer to bringing those other two risk factors together. I, I look back at my own career and Professionally, I wouldn't change anything. I love what I did. I might have might have done a little bit more OES assignment, but um, I've always landed on if I could change one thing, how could I have gone through that and and not let my desensitivity to events go home with me? So in a, in the the IFF resiliency program that that started a couple of years ago, it's a one day class. It's one of the IFF classes that that I also teach, and and so um, we talk about that um, uh, this idea of of need, needing to be able to uh, sort of put a wall up, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, a compassion wall or empathy wall up when we're dealing with with calls. Um, and dealing with with some of the the craziness that we deal with, but then having the ability to be able to bring that back down again is, is really the the key for for firefighters to live well and live healthy, and, and so being able to connect with family, mm-hmm. and and so without that, because what it does by putting that empathetic block up, then then you then it does lead to those other two issues where you 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 start to feel like um, you, you you don't have that same sense of belonging. 
because you have this wall up. Um, and then, and then some of those, uh, th this issue of a burden or, you know, like it, um, you know, it, it sort of gets to creep in where, you know, people would be better off without me, maybe because, because of these, uh, these other issues and because you're, you're, you're having that wall up, you're not connecting, um, at home and, and things like that. So then it, it sort of can exacerbate all of these issues. We think we're the only ones. Mm. You know, and you can be in a firehouse with, you know, 10 people, 12 people, three people, four, it doesn't matter. But most of the time we go through our day with the things that affect us and it's all in here. And, yeah. and we think we're the only ones and just having that conversation changes things. Without a doubt, it does. And, and I think one of the things too that, that is worth pointing out that um, it's really difficult when you talk about risk factors, when it mm -hmm. comes to suicide, it's really difficult to talk about risk. It's really difficult to quantify because ultimately we're still not very good at, at deciding who, who's at risk or who's more likely to, to have suicide ideation, suicide behaviors. Um, screening tools only work so well, you know, like, like the research is there. Um, and so when we talk about uh, risk, I think it's it's important to give it context, you know, mm -hmm. like so, so one of the risk factors they say is a previous suicide attempt um, it, it puts you at, at greater risk um, for another suicide attempt. But then um, uh, a caveat to that is that the research shows us that someone that's had a previous suicide attempt, nine out of 10 of them um, will still be alive 10 years later. And seven out of 10 of them won't make another attempt, right? And so, so you put, put a little context behind those numbers and there's actually re reasons to be optimistic. And I think that's where I don't want this conversation to be all about doom and gloom, no. right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and because there, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic. And so when we talk about risk, I think what we need to, need to look at is someone that's thinking about suicide, they're sort of stuck in this tension between reasons to live and reasons to die. And, and it's, it's terrible turmoil to be in at that point in that place. But what, what the research does show us is, is sort of really focusing on those reasons to live um, and, and sort of changing that, that um, um, giving people better reasons to live, I guess, more reasons to live will have uh, significant um, positive outcomes. And so now somebody in crisis will say, I, I don't see any reasons to right. live, right? And, and, but the thing that, you know, if you look at it, it may not be a great analogy, but looking at it, losing a set of keys, right? The keys just didn't cease to exist. You've just lost them, right? And so in the same sense, when somebody's in that turmoil, mm -hmm. they, you know, they, they, they may have, have lost their reasons to live, but they're not gone. Right. And so, it, you know, it's a matter of like, well, let's, let's take a little bit of time and let's see where, if we can find those again. And so, you know, and, and that's, that's where I think we, you know, sh sort of shift that, that conversation a little bit towards, um, towards optimism. Even talking about suicide, people killing themselves, it makes me, um, I'm just going to use the term flashback to the number of um, men that I worked with in, in my home local um, that I worked with. And, you know, just the number's over 20, but just off the top of my head, you know, I can name off 10 and half of those 10 I sat opposite a jump seat with. And it, for anybody out there, and especially new firefighters, um, this is an issue yeah. and it, and it isn't, we finally figured out, don't hide from this because it's not going away. And I want to talk about it in the context of, you know, we just came through a pandemic. Um, thank goodness last year we had a fairly, um, 
moderate fire season. We all know that can change. We go back to the Dixie, the car, the camp, the years where, you know, we were stringing, you know, the fire season essentially up until last year lasted three solid years. And what that means is we have members on the front line for days on end. What do you think... Um, talk, I'm going to talk about the impacts of that and how we as firefighters, um, when we're into these mutual aid um, responses, can take care of ourselves. You know, when we look at risk factors for firefighters, not just when it comes to behavioral health, but, but with cancer and all kinds of things, sleep can do incredible things. And there is sort of this bi-directional relationship between sleep can improve um, symptoms for mental health and then getting... Uh, treatment for mental health issues can improve sleep. You know, it's, it sort of goes both ways, mm-hmm. but sleep is one of those um, uh, sort of underrated things. And it's very difficult for for shift workers anywhere, regardless of what the profession is, as a shift worker, incredibly difficult to to sort of maintain good sleep. And so I think that that's an area that we could focus on in terms of wellness. Um, but one of the other things I think uh, to look at, um, you know, I, I, when I first started teaching this resiliency class, it was, it was myself, a, a guy out of Wisconsin, and then a retired FDNY member. Um, and so uh, uh, John Hemsley uh, would talk about, um, you know, the, a, a good predictor of how someone's going to cope with September 11th is to look at how they live their life on September 10th, right? And so in, in terms of, um, you know, if, if we can encourage our folks to live well, because I think there, there is this sort of this element of being a risk taker and, you know, we, we sometimes have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and things like that. So, um, and, and we just need to acknowledge those things, but also work to living healthier because it's going to just help when times get tough. Um, you know, and that, and that not, just, not just in terms of eating right and exercising and, and you know, um, watching your alcohol intake, things like that, but, but it is um, having solid relationships, you know, solid social supports, um, mm-hmm. good relationship at home. If you're not, like marriage counselling is phenomenal um, to get uh, to get yourself into a good place where you can communicate well and, and those kinds of things. So all of those pieces are, are going to help, particularly when our folks are being asked to do more than they ever have before. And and you talk to some of the some of the things that we've done in the last few years, you know, not only being a, being at the at the forefront of the pandemic when it first arrived right. and then and then setting up vaccination pods and then, you know, like the fire services that has already been asked to do extraordinary things over the last three years in, in you know, that endless wildfire season to then come into this, um, it, it, it's enough to, to push anybody. It, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of the, through, through the pandemic, I look back on it and there's a lot that I just sit and go, I can't believe what we went through. But you and I know, and anybody that that is on the job knows kind of the internal turmoil that we went through as professionals, whether um, you were directly impacted by COVID um, with uh, deaths of either friends or coworkers, um, down to the treatment, you know, the controversy. I look back on it and 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 am pretty amazed at how we came out of it. Mm. Um, the way we did, it could have been a lot worse. And even with everything um, going on around us, it amazes me how firefighters respond. But it also makes me think, is there going to be some long-term mental health and physical health issues 
out of that period of, of uh, COVID because for us, it's compounded. Yeah. You know, our fire seasons didn't stop. The incidents we go to didn't stop. And do we need to look at the aftermath of, I think, the last five years? For if you're a professional firefighter or a public safety officer, it's been a hell of a five-year span. You know, yeah. we lost members. We, You know, since I've started with this job, we've had two fire captains shot and killed yes. on, on active fires. And so the game has changed. We have mass shootings. Um, we had here in Roseville just uh, a week ago, um, a person went on a shooting spree. They shot a California Highway Patrol officers. The members at Roseville Engine 5 uh, happened right in their backyard. They evacuated people and, and secured people, including the, the Highway Patrol officer that was shot within the fire station. We have a lot more happening to us professionally that I think is, I want to talk about that a little bit. What do we need to be doing? Because I think it might come home to roost on us. Yeah. I'm worried about it. No, I, I, I agree. I think, thankfully, for, so some of this stuff, and I'm the eternal optimist, so some of the, some of the divisions, some of the, the animosity and some of the, the temperature in, in, in those divisions, I, I really feel like has come Gone down. Gone way down, yes. Yeah, and so, you know, there's a, there's a great book by um, Sebastian Younger uh, called Tribe, and he talks about, um, you know, for a fulfilling life, you need community, competence, and autonomy. And, and when you look at what happened through the pandemic, where, where the community really got divided, where we lost a lot of autonomy, whether it's you're getting stuck at work, your family can't visit you, vaccine mandates, regardless of what side of the that debate that you fall on, right? All those things. So it really started to impact. The one thing that we held on to throughout all of, all of those issues was competence in that the fire service is one area, one industry, one um, profession that is incredibly competent. And we do a phenomenal job in meeting the risks that and, and the hazards that get thrown at us every day. But I think now that we're coming out of that pandemic, we are starting to see that, that sense of community and autonomy is starting to come back a little bit. So that's where I feel like temperature's coming down. To your point though, I think one of the things that's come out of COVID that, that we really do need to address is the lack of mental health professionals, uh, the availability of mental health professionals. In Ventura County, for example, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at, we, we have an, an on-call clinician, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Sharma, we've, he's been with us for years and has been a phenomenal resource, but, but we, one clinician's, you know, it's not a one size fits all. We, we need to have more um, the ability for people to, to reach out to others if, if they don't want to see Dr. Sharma. And also he, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't practice sort of marriage counselling. He doesn't uh, work with children. And so we needed to add these components to it. Right. So we, we've sort of gone out at, to look what's available. There really isn't much available. And then who's going to work... Uh, who's going to work within the workers' comp system when there's all this paperwork you have to do and, and you'll be lucky to get 100, 120 bucks an hour out of the system when in Ventura County, at least, you can charge 250 an hour cash and it, why, why would you do that? You know, on, on some level, and I know like we, you know, we, not we deserve, but I think that the, the access to mental health uh, services is incredibly important because of the work that we do. Yes, and, and so I think that's going to be a big challenge for us moving forward. One of the things that I've seen, um, departments that have, um, I don't want to say robust, but an active and an in-tune um, peer support program, 
They also seem to have taken the time to locate and identify culturally competent clinicians in their area. Experience is important, but that culturally competent piece is critical. And, um, you know, going forward, that's, that's where I'm going to draw on other people. Okay, this is what we've identified in this issue. How do we, what are we going to do to tackle this? Yeah. And, and so a couple of points I want to make on that, because I, I, one, I think um, outside of the workers' comp, uh, arena because that's gonna that's a long term that's gonna take time is having getting a clinician that you can contract with locally um, finding somebody even bringing somebody up like grab somebody coming out of, yes. of school and and bring them into the fold and I'll tell you that the cost is I, I have 120 um, sworn firefighters and, and an agency of 150 people in total um, it, it cost me about a thousand bucks a month uh, for doc, dr. Sharma's time in a $40 million budget or whatever it is now, it's, uh, money well it, spent. It, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. But the second point I wanted to make really quickly was um, because of the lack of uh, mental health resources, mm -hmm. that's what makes it so much in, more important for us to be talking to each other, for us to having yes. these conversations, for our peer teams to be out there doing their work and, and having, those, having those conversations. And let's be real talking about suicide and and sort of exploring if somebody if you think somebody's at risk of suicide is an incredibly difficult conversation to have Very it's anxiety so. provoking but you can do it we can all do it and and if you can get somebody that that's willing to talk to you about it the fact that they're talking is huge and that's a huge win and so just keeping that dialogue going it is that important, but but understand it. Yes, it will be anxiety provoking. Right. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's okay. I want to talk about kind of the nuts and bolts. Um, mm. As you know, even if you're not a, a peer supporter, um, you could find yourself in a position where you you see something, you notice something, you feel a need to at least speak to a person um, that you that appears to to be kind of in a danger zone. We all know when we find ourselves in a position where we found a coworker or a friend at risk, we know it, you feel it in your gut. What do you do? There's two sides to that that, I, that I'd like to get to, but, but, but most basically, when we're, we're talking about warning signs, it's, it's what people, like what you see, what maybe you hear they say, what, what you sense about, about their actions and what they're doing, or maybe you learn, learn things from other people that they're having a hard time at home or, you know, the, the wife just asked them, their spouse has asked them to move out or, or what, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and so those kind of pieces uh, are the things. So what you see, hear, sense or learn, the, the four basic, um, basic things uh, can be an opportunity to have a conversation. And, and when having that conversation, it, it is awkward, but if you're coming from a place of caring, it, it's hard for somebody to sort of react in, in an angry way to you or sort of push you away. Because you, um, and so if you can use those things that you've seen or heard or sensed or learned to have that conversation, right? Hey, I've noticed that, you know, in our agency, we call it the dorm ninja, right? Where you just, you're, you're in your dorm all day. So, you know, notice you've become a bit of a dorm ninja recently. Like, you know, you're not participating in morning muster. Like I'm noticing these things and maybe they're not great examples, but I'm noticing these things. Um, this could mean that you, you know, maybe you're, you're thinking about suicide. Are you thinking about suicide? You know, it, it, it has to be a clear ask. Like once, right. once you know, once you have that, that spidey sense, that hair on the back of your neck, um, 
once you have that feeling, it's, it's really important that you ask the question and, and it has to be a clear ask, right? Asking, right. you know, are you going to hurt yourself? Most people are thinking about suicide are thinking about ending their suffering. So they could quite honestly answer that question. No, I'm not thinking about hurting myself, right? I'm ending suffering, you know, and you're not thinking about doing anything stupid, are you? Right. That's, you're putting judgment on, on right. the, the turmoil that they're in. And so those things, and that's where it needs to be literally, are you thinking about suicide? If you can't say suicide, and we see this when we, when we teach these classes all the time, it's a hard word to say. Are you thinking about killing yourself? Um, it really needs to be that direct. And, and yeah, it's anxiety provoking, but you've got to ask the question. Yes. And then it's, then it's a matter of do they um, depend on how they respond? But if they say yes... And, and they are thinking about suicide, you've just cracked the door open to be able to have a broader conversation that, that will, can ultimately save a life. Um, the other thing that, I, that I, I think it's really important to mention because so many times we look back and we, we, we think we've missed something. You know, you miss that invitation, you miss that warning sign and it can absolutely happen. I, I know um, a guy that I worked with and I spoke to him two days before he suicided and I struggled going back on that conversation and trying to mm. think if I'd missed something. I don't know, honestly, I can't tell you for sure whether or not I missed something, but I'll tell you that, that um, one interaction that individual happened, had on the day he suicided was uh, he ran into a friend of his on the street, just a random interaction. These two guys had known each other for 50 plus years, had a small talk conversation. At the end of that conversation, this individual says, hey brother, I love you as they're going their separate ways. The, the guy said at the time, it made the hair on the back of his neck stand up, but he never made that connection. And, and would somebody make that connection, right? Like it, 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 right. people, those warning signs can be really subtle, really difficult to pick up and then difficult to connect with suicide. And I, I say that because um, there's plenty of folks that are gonna be listening to this that have probably tried to help somebody that ultimately suicided. There's probably plenty of people that, that maybe thought they missed something. And I want them to know that risk of, like your, your, your suicide risk can change dramatically, right? From, from only sort of thinking about it in the right. background to suicide behavior in as little as six hours. And so that means that it's very difficult for somebody to be able to intervene, to be able to save that life. And so people that feel like um, they missed something or they, they, they should have done more, and it, like, they need to understand that, it, that that's not, often not the case. And given an opportunity, they, you know, if they'd been able to spot it. So I, I, I want people to know that it's, that it's not all on them and they shouldn't be, shouldn't be owning right. the, that, that feeling because there is, it, it is so difficult. Um, yeah. to, to make that connection, particularly when you've got to have, then have this awkward conversation. Um, and so I, um, it, it's important. One of the things I did want to touch on um, is the IFF, if, if for folks, locals that have had that two-day peer support training program, mm -hmm. um, there's an online training that the IFF offers. Um, it's safety intervention planning for suicide. And essentially it's, it's sort of the next the next step in, in, in suicide prevention, it's, I think clinicians would call it uh, crisis uh, response planning. And, when, when, and so it's basically giving people tools when they get into a crisis to be able to help themselves, right? To be able to um, uh, get themselves through, through a crisis. 
Because what we see in, uh, when it comes to suicide risk is those feelings can build up, build up, build up, and, and maybe you get to a, a suicide behaviour or maybe it, it, it'll dissipate back down again and, and there's no suicide behaviour there. The, that IFF program is, is designed to sort of get you through that, that rising level of, of suicidal thoughts or ideations before you get to a behaviour. And, and so it, it is a really neat training. It, it's, it's a two-hour online training after you've taken uh, peer support uh, program through the IFF. I think that's another really good one that hasn't had a lot of um, – pe- you know, I think we've had 10,000 people go through the IFF peer support training now. And only about 500 have taken the this um, safety intervention training. So it's something that we could we could definitely add, just a, you know, another tool in the in the behavioural health toolbox. When you were talking, one thing that kind of struck me because I never really thought about it. I always thought, you know, if a person's thinking about killing themselves, it's 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 a process they've taken upon themselves. That I always looked at it as it lasts a long time. And something that you just said was it can elevate and dissipate in as little as a few hours. Mm. I never I never thought about it like that. I always thought that um, I had my preconceived notion on how a person could find themselves there and you just made me wake up to, that's not always the case. Right. That sometimes, sometimes like you get an acute onset, yep. it can be the same thing. I didn't really realize that. Yeah, absolutely. In the same way, like, you know, you, you can get into a bad mood you don't mm-hmm. stay in a bad mood forever, right. right? And you can have something that happens that'll put you in a bad mood very quickly, right? It 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 works somewhat the same way. It may again may not be a good analogy. One of the things I think though that we also need to acknowledge and um, is you know when we talk about access to lethal means, mm-hmm. right? So and and means restriction and and I want to, this is nothing to do with the Second Amendment. I'm not talking about no. gun control. No, but we need to acknowledge that. Um, um, Suicide, uh, suicide by firearm makes half makes up half of all suicides, and suicide by firearm makes makes up two thirds of all uh, firearm deaths. It is a big number for us, right? And and so, and guns are lethal more than ninety percent of the time, right? It's an incredibly lethal method, and so so I, and I. That's why I preface it with don't want to don't want this to be a, a Second Amendment conversation, no. but but I know every single gun owner listening to this would want to do everything they can to avoid an inadvertent injury or death yeah, absolutely. Um, from, owning, from owning guns. And so, so that piece is something that we need to address, you know. And so, so in your own jurisdictions, what happens if you have a member in crisis and where can they store their firearms? Like would you be comfortable taking them? And which is great if you are, but remember that at some point they're going to want them, those guns back. And so you need to you need to sort of look forward a little bit, but also there are some great um, you know work with your law enforcement partners. Um, often people that are in crisis don't want to involve law enforcement, so then it's gun rages, gun shops will often store firearms. I didn't. Interesting. Um, yeah, and so you, and so if you have a local gun range or gun shop, go speak to them. Will, mm-hmm. will you guys store these uh, firearms for us if we have a member that needs them stored temporarily? And so and then in the home. Um, and I'm sure everyone does these things, but um, keeping the weapons unloaded, keeping them in gun safes, you know, the, these very basic um, means can do, uh, do a lot to sort of um, lower that temperature. Having even just small barriers can do a lot, just give people enough time to sort of stop and, and reflect on the decision before they make Ease it. Ease of opportunity is not helpful. 
So Alex, we, we talked about the awareness and the fact that, you know, maybe as a firefighter, you see something in the station, you approach a member and uh, you, a coworker and you talk to him about it and you might diffuse the situation there. Um, or they might have um, uh, thoughts that require more help than you're in a position to give. Let's just say you're a firefighter, you have awareness. I ask the questions. I've got an answer that I know I need to get more help. What do I do? Hmm. What should I do to help this person get from point A to point B? That's a great question and, and a really important one too, because w once you've identified that and identified that need, it is incumbent to get them to the to a resource. Now, what does that look like in your jurisdiction? And and that's something that there there are resources out there. Even if your agency currently has nothing in place, I guarantee you there's resources in your community. And so the, the simplest and easiest one is calling 988 if you don't have any resources, right? That's the new three-digit number for the suicide prevention hotline. I have used it before. You can put that put the phone on speakerphone with you and that individual right then and there and, and talk through stuff. You know, that that's a most immediate uh, Band-Aid if you've got nothing else to use. But, but otherwise, it's um, getting them in touch with the peer team. You know, peer teams exist yes. as a bridge to other resources, right? That's, that's literally their, their, their function. Right. And so if you can get them to the, the peer team, but it has to be, it can't be like, hey, this, this is my buddy. He's on the peer team. Call, call this number, right? It's got to be a positive introduction. And yeah, it has to be a handoff, right? A, you know, yes. almost a physical handoff where, and even if it's, and because so you don't want to be walking away and like, hey, you know, John over here is having this issue. And, and so I need you to talk to him. It's like, hey, John, I need you to come with me and we're going we're gonna to get to this peer team because I want to keep you safe. I care about you. And and that's where we, that's where we need to, to get people. And, and keep in mind that, um, you know, if you have no experience in doing this and this feels really uncomfortable, the fact that they're talking to you means that you're winning right now. Yeah. You know, and and keep keep doing that. Get them to resources because, again, the vast majority of people, when they're in that space, you can bring them back down yes. again. That, that openly open acknowledgement and talking about it and over the course of my career, um, I have realized is a very big deal to a person that's having a crisis. Most departments now have an EAP program. If, if your department has an EAP, whether it's your local or partner up with a labor management um, behavioral health, however you do it, call them. Mm -hmm. you, we, it is amazing what is offered and what, you know, what kind of help you can get. And the more you interact with them, the better service you're going to get. And it takes away that other stigma, I guess. But Positive handoff and that acknowledgement is a very big deal. Yeah. One other thing, I know, we're, I know we're, we're short on time. One other thing I really just wanted to touch on is um, uh, to acknowledge that we're not going to save everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's just an unfortunate fact that we have to live with. But with that in mind, research tells us that for every suicide, it impacts about 135 people on average. I would argue for a firefighter that number is likely exponentially right. higher. So what, what I would encourage those listening, uh, either labor leaders or chiefs that are listening, get your post-vention resources together. Have, have things ready. Um, you know, maybe as a part of this suicide safety stand down uh, or mental health awareness stand down this month, um, the labor and management groups of, of, of agencies can look at putting those resources together, right? Like just have a postvention policy. What are you going to do? There's great handouts on the IFF uh, behavioral health page about how to talk about a firefighter suicide. Just start there. 
you don't even have to do anything. Just pull that down and have it have it with you somewhere handy in case you need it. But there are some really other really good resources to use to actually build a policy and be ready for um, what may happen, so that you so that you, you're not playing catch up right. if it if it ever unfortunately happens. And so you just mentioned this month CPF and and Cal Chiefs again. We're asking departments um, to participate in our annual suicide prevention and awareness stand down. Um, how important do you think this these this type of an event is to all of our members, and, and including members that are struggling? Uh, crucial, and 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 I hope that people listening to this and and um and 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 really thinking about this and thinking about how they can approach it. Company officers in the station, like how are you going to have have this conversation? And I think we also need to acknowledge that. Um, Again, research tells us that at any given time, 5% of the population is thinking about suicide. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a good number of people listening to this. So there's going to be people listening to this that are likely thinking about suicide. And all I would say is um, I, I sincerely hope that you're visible to those around you because you do have a community, you do belong. And say, so repeat that again, because you're really this. What this is what you just said, Alex, is super important, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I really want to reiterate it. There's potential that we have members listening in right now that are struggling with that, and I want you to speak directly to them. Yeah, and and again, I will say that you um, you are important, and I hope that you're visible to those around you because there are people that care for you. Please, if you can, and I know it's incredibly difficult when you're in crisis, reach out for help. If, you, if you're not visible and people can't see your turmoil, please reach out for help. 988 is, is just a, a perfect place to start if you don't feel like you can actually have that, that first conversation. Alex, Chief Hamilton, uh, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you with us today on the Firewire. I, I know for a fact that the work that you're doing has saved lives and it will continue to save lives. And I truly appreciate um, your members, the Oxnard firefighters in the city of Oxnard, um, allowing and not just allowing, supporting you um, in this um arena that is so it's life and death for us and i'm very thankful and grateful to to you the oxnard fire department the oxnard firefighters and the time that you're allowed to take to really um make an impact for all of our members across california and brothers and sisters you don't have to suffer in silence um, the job takes a toll nobody gets out of this unscarred and the other one you are not alone and if you need some help um, getting through a difficult time, there are resources that are available to you, and we encourage um, all departments and, and labor unions to participate in um, this month's suicide safety stand down. Here's a perfect 90-minute drill right now. Pull, pull that up. Um, and go over it with your crew. Um, if you feel like you're in crisis, call someone you trust or call the National Suicide Hotline. Alex mentioned it a number of times, 988. That's 988. This is CPF President Brian Rice, and thank you for listening today. You can find CPF Firewire at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you find podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. You can also find CPF Firewire at the CPF website, www.cpf.org, and on the CPF YouTube page. We're always interested in getting your feedback, comments, and criticism. Tell us what you'd like to hear about. Drop us a line, info at cpf.org. 
CPF Firewire is a production of California Professional Firefighters. Our producer is Carol Wills. Our engineer is Matt McDermott. Please join us next month for another edition of CPF Firewire.